under the weather. And fact is, there's several people that are a little under the weather or unable to talk. And I think when they got down to number 17, <laughs> here I am. Providence. I've worked at many jobs over my life. Many were significant and many and several were not so blessed. But there were four jobs that were very notable for me. I was a UPS sorter for six years. I was a Mr. Mom for 12 years. I was a coal mine permit engineer for two years. And then I was chief drainage engineer for the transportation cabinet for 10 years. The most meaningful and blessed job that I had was being Mr. Mom and being with my kids during their formative years and also working with my wife, Jackie, as we planned, designed, and constructed our farm. Now, two of these jobs were very special, and I might say that they were even providential. Uh, The story of how I was able to acquire the job only makes me realize who was really calling the shots, and that was the Lord. UPS was special. It was special because this is where I was working when I became a Christian. It was during this job that I especially noticed that I was being impacted with God's calling, and God was answering my prayers for help and for my salvation. Transportation cabinet was special because it helped me prepare to be a better shepherd And it was a wonderful experience in so many other ways, I can't even begin to list them. I would like to share with you how I got the transportation job of being the chief drain engineer for the the state. I was already working for the state government as a coal mine permit engineer. It was a little boring and not without its problems and its politics, but it was a good job at least uh, the two years I was there. So after I'd been working for mine permits for one year, An opportunity for promotion came up, and I was encouraged to apply for it. I won the position. However, one of the younger engineers with 10 years of experience uh, with the state was unhappy and filed a grievance with the personnel board. Although I had much more experience than Tim, that's not his name, I'm using it to protect myself, uh, he had 10 years of experience working for the state, and you that work for the state know That means a whole lot. He also had two pips, and you that work for the state knows what that means. Um, Tim had hired a lawyer that successfully litigated a personnel grievance against Governor Ernie Fletcher. I will call him Jack, especially since I'm going to be talking about donkeys in a few minutes. (laughs) This all seemed discouraging, but at least I had the state's lawyers working for me. I'd called their office for advice on how to prepare, and they said they were taking care of it. Great, I thought. They even advised me to sign some form that would allow me to be present during the trial. It sounded like a wise thing to do, so I did it. Before the trial began, I was informed that the lawyers who were helping with the case had all quit for state government. A new governor and administration had taken over, uh, and that didn't, uh, of course, that didn't really seem very good to me, and now... There was only going to be one lawyer from the state working on the case, and that didn't seem very encouraging to me either. The day of the trial had finally come. I have now been working in my new position for one year, so I've been at the state for two years. I I show up for the case with little in my hand. I'm not even sure if I had an ink pen. So we have Jack the lawyer and Tim, his client, on one side of the room, and on the other we have the lone lawyer working for the state. I'm calling him Bob. 
we have Bob, and then I'm sitting by myself, and I'm hoping all things go pretty well. The judge enters the court, and immediately he asks for opening statements. Jack gives his for the litigant. Bob gives his for the state. And then the judge asks me for my opening statement. I said, what? <laughs> I was told to be here till I could be here to listen. She explained that because I'd signed some document, I'm responsible to represent myself and have my own counsel. Well, it was obvious to everybody in the room that I had no counsel, and quite frankly, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I certainly noticed that Jack had a big smile on his face. So I politely passed on the opening statement because I knew that I was way out of my lane and I didn't need to shoot myself in the foot by saying something that might seem innocent enough but destroys the case. The first witness is called. Jack interrogates her at length. Bob then does the same thing. Then the judge says, it's my turn to interrogate the witness. What? I said, I'm just here to observe. And she explains again (laughs) that I am uh, responsible for my own case. So I politely pass on questioning the witness because I knew I was way out of my lane and I didn't need to shoot myself in the foot by saying something that might seem innocent enough. But I did notice that Jack had a big smile on his face. Now, I wasn't too happy with the questioning by the state's attorney, Bob, uh, on the witness. There was more to the story that would help my case. He didn't ask about it. So the second witness was questioned by Jack, who seemed quite chipper. uh, Then Bob questioned the witness. By this time, I'm pretty frustrated by the direction the trial's going. So I decided it was time to take the bull by the horns and start interrogating. So I sure enough, I know it was comical and entertaining to the judge and everyone else in the court. I know I wasn't Perry Mason or Harvey Specter. I'd say I was more of a Vinnie Gambini without the, uh, <laughs> without the mouth, I'm glad to say. Uh, but I knew more about certain issues than anyone else in the courtroom, and I started bringing them up. Um, I started kind of getting into the row. I started forming a game plan for my questions. Even with my newfound approach to the case, I was still entertaining to the court. I assumed the trials didn't have this much smiling and laughing and smirks. After the trial, I had to write a summary statement for the court, another task I never saw coming my way. After the second trial, the group of judges, I'm not sure what you call them, either a cackle or a troop, but they ruled that neither side was successful at winning their argument. They decided that I should revert back to my old position and mine permits, and they should redo the process. Bummer. It was a victory because I stopped Jack from giving Tim the promotion, but still was a bummer. So I go back to the office building. I walk down the hallway to my office. One of the engineers sees me and wants to know how it went. And I told her, and I, you know, she says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to apply to transportation cabinet. They have a job that looks perfect for you. They, she showed me the ad, and it's basically asking for a water engineer. I am a water engineer. So I walked down to the office. I, call, I immediately grabbed the phone. I called the supervisor who was advertising. His name was Moses. <laughs> we hit it off. So we talk both the same language. Things in state government don't move very fast. However, in one month time, I was transferred from mine permits to transportation cabinet. Not only that, instead of going down a position, I actually got a promotion to a higher rank. More than that, this was a job I truly loved, and it benefited me so much as a person and as a leader. And I think I was an asset to KYTC as as well. During the several months of trial, I did not feel God was giving me a blessing. 
I really was walking around with a dark cloud over my head. But in the March of 2009, that cloud was replaced with sunshine. And the previous months of gloom now looked totally different. I was reminded again how God works behind the scenes to bring a blessing to people. Let's talk about the book of Samuel. Chapter 9 uh, Chapter 9 of 1 Samuel begins with a somewhat boring story about lost donkeys and a tall, handsome young man being sent to look for him. This man is Saul, uh, the future king, and he takes a young servant with him while they go looking for lost donkeys. What we do not know yet is at the same time, Samuel is hearing a message. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man. You see, verses 15 to 17 of the chapter provides us with more information that explains actually what is happening in the story. What we learn is that the Lord frequently takes the little things of our lives and he turns them into channels of mercy. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story. Introductions first. First we meet Kish, Saul's father, a rather wealthy farmer with a solid Benjaminite pedigree. Then Saul, Kish's son, he's a handsome young fellow People would have voted him Mr. Israel had there been such a contest. And if they'd had a basketball team, he would surely have been the star center. The writer passes on into, uh, into the story, but you must keep in mind this description of Saul in 9 verses 1 to 2. His ideal appearance and his physical impressiveness. File it away. It will prove very important later in the story. Providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. When I use providence, I mean this. God will see to it that everything works for the goal that he has for the world. There's a lot of common stuff in this narrative that, we've, that, we was, uh, that Alvin read just a minute ago. Looking for lost donkeys. Asking the local folks, have you happened to see where my donkeys are? Making a thorough tour of the Central Hill Company. That's Ephraim. Shalisha. Sha'alim, the land of Benjamin, and the land of Zur. A lot of roaming around. Deciding that they were going to just give up on this fruitless search, but from the urging of the servant that, that they should seek the man of God, they happened to find a fourth shekel of weight for the prophet's fee. It's all of this was so natural and so ordinary, it kind of seems casual. Who would have known that it was all planned? It looks like we're dealing simply with what's naturally occurring rather than what is ordained. How do we know losing donkeys and finding a kingdom was God's doing? The only way we know it is because of the interruption in the story. The interruption occurs in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. If you read the story through verse 14 and immediately go to verse 18, you'll find the story connects perfectly. The flow happens without missing a beat. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? So in one sense, verses 15 to 17 are not necessary for the flow of the story. It's only necessary for understanding the story. The emphatic Yahweh at verse 15 clues us in that something important is being said. Now, Yahweh had uncovered Samuel's ears, that's what it says in the Hebrew, the day before Saul's coming, saying, 
At this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him as leader over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, for their cry for help has come to me. Now Samuel saw Saul, and, uh, and Yahweh answered him, Look, the man I told you about, he will govern my people. Now we hear the secret of what Yahweh is doing. I will send you a man. That puts an entirely different face on the matter. What has so far appeared to be coincidence is very much under Yahweh's directions. Saul is sent, he is selected, he is sanctioned by God. Sometimes it helps to be in on the secret. However, we might ask, does God's providence only operate in the affairs of major figures in salvation history like Saul? Or does, it, uh, or does his mostly invisible wisdom follow my path as well? Does God direct only major episodes in his kingdom? Or does his sway extend to the individual lives of his subjects? Surely the latter. Wisdom testifies to it. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. And a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How can then man, how then can man understand his way? God doesn't only deal with kings in this way. He also deals with all of us in this way. However, unlike 1 Samuel 9, he might not let you in on his secret. You may see traces of what he's doing much later as you look back, but in the present, you may be just as much in the dark as Saul was. If, you, if so, you must simply go on looking for the lost donkeys or whatever task God has given you to do, but you should, go on, you should do so knowing that God is at work somehow in your affairs. We must, however, take note of this intrusion especially in verse 16, and note that Yahweh's providence is in service to his pity. He is sending Saul to Samuel because Saul is the one who will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people, for their cry of help has come to me. One of the fascinating marks about this whole section is that hardly anyone knows what's going on. Samuel knows because God told him. But Kish and Saul and the servant, they simply think they're looking for lost livestock. The narrative has even more ordinary events occurring that seem like unnecessary information. However, Yahweh is actively at work, but few see what he's doing. He is working for the deliverance of his people, but they do not see it. He works secretly. We can clearly see on the surface things like searching for donkeys and finding a lucky shekel, perhaps, and perhaps that's all we can discern. But it doesn't mean that's all that's occurring. The same is true for us. God often maintains his kingdom in an, uncover, in an undercover way, secretly. We do not know the details of what he's preparing to do. However, his true servants should find the most incredible encouragement from understanding this fact alone. As we continue on in 1 Samuel, we learn that this nice young man who is seemingly perfect for the role of king is indeed selected as the first king. But we slowly learn the, that beneath the surface of this promising king are human qualities 
that are not kingly, at least not in God's kingdom. How Saul handled a tense and dangerous situation showed that he relied on himself and his own strength rather than the Lord and his power. We witness a kingship removed from Saul uh, that seemed so right, that he seemed so right for this position, at least from the viewpoint of most humans. And this brings us to chapter 16, the book of 1 Samuel, the anointing of David. And we all know the story. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and I have prov- uh, for I provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel is in mourning. It says a lot about Samuel's heart that he is so hurt by the result of Saul's failed kingship. The Lord gave Saul very clear instructions concerning a battle with King Agag of the Amalekites. Unfortunately, Saul decided to take King Agag alive as a trophy and the best of his livestock as victory over the Amalekites. Samuel witnessed Saul fail to be able to depend on the word of the Lord for guidance during a challenging test of his faithfulness. Although this disappointment was very costly to Saul, Samuel was still wanting Saul to be successful as a king. His grief was significant. However, there is a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. God was trying to wake Samuel up to the fact that it's time to dance today. The Lord alerted Samuel that he had selected a new king, one after his own heart. So much of the story of 1 Samuel shows how God is at work and we don't have a clue what he's doing. We fail to realize that lost donkeys in a simple feast are part of God's plan to fulfill his will for his people. Yahweh loves his chosen family, and he's always working, whether we recognize it or not, to save them from harm in this world and to lead them in victory for his kingdom's sake. The Lord told Samuel, I will show you what to do. In 1 Samuel 10, 8, Samuel had told Saul a similar command. You must wait until I show you what to do. However, Saul struggled to depend on God's direction for guidance. Samuel obeys the Lord. For Samuel, obeying the Lord is his heart's desire. Verses 4 to 5, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Why are they scared of of Samuel? Ask Agag. The previous chapters tells of Samuel completing the task that Yahweh had given Saul to do. Saul was to deliver vengeance to the Amalekites for how they attacked the children of Israel when they entered the promised land 300 years earlier. Since Saul did not uh, complete the task, Samuel needed to finish it. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
It seems that the prophet Samuel was someone you needed to fear to some extent. And then in verse 6, when they came to look, uh, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We hear the thoughts of Samuel. It's actually unusual that the writer lets us know the thinking of Samuel. These are his first impressions of Jesse's sons, and it probably does not come with just a quick glance at them. It's probably based on spending time socializing with Jesse's families as they're, as they're preparing the heifer for sacrifice. The animal had to be killed. The blood had to be bled from the animal. And then it had to be prepared for sacrifice and the meal. All this was done with Jesse's family being the featured guest. Samuel had good opportunity to size up the sons of Jesse. But let's also remember that Samuel is a wise old man who's been listening to the Lord since he first heard the Lord's voice sleeping in the temple. For decades, he's walked with the Lord, and he spoke God's wisdom and counsel to the children of Israel. Yet when he witnessed Eliab and sized him up with all the experience that he had walking with God, he reached the wrong conclusion about whether he was the right choice for the king of Israel. When it comes to choosing, the narrative in 1 Samuel says we often do a bad job. For example, the elders of Israel chose the Ark of the Covenant to help them win their battles against the Philistines instead of seeking the Lord's will. When choosing a king, the people viewed the tall and handsome uh, young man Saul as the perfect choice for their new kingdom. Samuel viewed Eliab as a perfect choice for king. When we, when we rely on our own wisdom and learning, we do not know how to make the best choice. The conclusion must be that we need to listen more carefully to the Lord. As a people in general, we get fascinated with the wrong qualities. We view things like someone's height, their attractiveness, their success, their communication skills as more valuable than their inner qualities. God does not. He always sees clearly. We should not misread the thinking of the Lord. Let's not think that God opposes fine appearance. Um, he does not assume that if you're good looking, then you would not be a good choice for his spiritual work. If that's the case, most of us in this room would not be chosen. But it's supposed to get a little bit of reaction there if you were listening. Um, <clears throat> yes. Amen. <laughs> so at least some of us. Um, External appearances neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter. It's the quality of your heart that matters. The text is a warning for God's people. It reveals our need. It shows us that discernment that we lack. If Samuel, who walks and talks with God, struggles in making the right choice, how much more will we struggle? Only God's wisdom is adequate for directing his kingdom. There's one thing we can do. Beware of the impressiveness of external appearances. We can stumble there. As an example, what, quali what qualities does a typical church look for 
when they're hiring a minister for a congregation. It seems like they want to have the movers and shakers, the likable, friendly extroverts, people outside themselves, people who have the gift of talking very well with passionate conviction, people who are funny and personable. You know, those are the qualities kind of that we really would like to have. But do we ever ask, how about your prayer life, your private prayer life? Do you enjoy being with your wife? Do you have a healthy marriage? Can you cry with others? Can you admit that you are wrong? Can they submit to the advice of leaders who have more wisdom? Can they handle their self well when discussions become heated or intense? It seems that these questions might help us see someone's heart better than the first set of questions. And there are some things that people can do to help them have a healthier heart condition. Disciples of Christ need to seek the Lord privately, in secret. We should be known for praying, not only in public, but in private, when no one sees. We should be known for reading our Bible and being students of the Word. We should also be known that we, by serving others who are in need. Jesus' followers should love to take rest with the Lord in green pastures and beside still waters. They are always on a quest to know the Lord more deeply, no matter what their age is. The narrative in 1 Samuel and elsewhere in the Old and New Testament should serve as examples for us to help us not make the same mistakes that our ancestors made. Verses 11 through 13. Then Samuel said to Jesse, all your son, are all your sons here? And he said, there, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother's And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We finally get to meet the next king, God's choice for his chosen people. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons, and evidently, he's not seen as significant or presentable part of the family. When Samuel asked if he had another son, Jesse did not mention him by name. He was not invited to a special feast with a famed prophet, which would have been a significant event in the life of Jesse's family. He was only called to come to the feast because Samuel had insisted. And Samuel only insisted because God told him the next king was going to be a son of Jesse, and none of the other seven sons were selected by Yahweh. Yet in spite of all these slights by his own family, David was the one who had been selected by the Lord to be the king of Israel, the one who was special because he was a man after God's own heart. The application of this text is so needed by us today. You may not be the smartest in your family. You may not be well thought of in your family. You may be ignored by others because of your holy life, and you may be despised by others because of your faith. But you need to know that the beloved of the Lord are often rejected by people. David was busy doing his father's business and caring for the sheep. Tending sheep was a servant's job, not one for a prince. How could a king of Israel be a simple shepherd? 
because God knows what he's doing. David learned the importance of being a good shepherd by trusting the Lord when the flock was in danger. David learned the importance of being a good shepherd from the experience of being alone with the Lord and reflecting on God's mercy and grace. David loved to listen to the Lord by green pastures and in still waters. God often selects the most unlikely person, at least in our eyes, to do a special work for him. And God has a way of turning our logic upside down. This is the one. The whole scene points us toward and reminds us of one of David's descendants. The core issues being highlighted here are ones that actually remind us of Jesus. Jesus was not seen as significant by any of the local folks. The local folks said, he's just one of us. He's no different. Local folks said, he, he cannot be anything special. He was rejected because he had too much fun. They thought that, you know, he's not from the right place. Local folks thought that he's not the right one because they knew that the Messiah does not suffer. Jesus is not remembered as a son of Abraham or a follower of Moses, but he is remembered as the son of David. The development of the kingdom of Israel, as witnessed in the book of Samuel, shows us how God was teaching the chosen people what he was looking for in men and women. Yahweh is looking for faithful hearts that long for the word of the Lord to help them know how they should walk in this world. That was the painful lesson that Saul could not grasp, but that the leader, reader can learn. What really matters is the state of your heart. And my question is, are you taking good care of it? We should also remember that the book of Samuel teaches us how God works with us in the very small things of life. The search for donkeys and the discovery of a shekel are seemingly insignificant unless we have the Lord's viewpoint. Every morning when we rise, we should remind ourselves that God is working behind the scenes in the events of each day. Because we often do not recognize his fingerprints in these events happening around us, we should at least learn to approach each day with great hope and joy because we do know he is working his will all around us. The book of Samuel shows us how God delights in working his will in unusual and unguessable ways. It honors him when we notice his handiwork and celebrate his surprises. He truly loves turning mourning into dancing. We don't do much dancing around here on Sunday morning, but we do a lot of praying and a lot of rejoicing. We do a lot of praying and a lot of rejoicing when we notice or realize God's work all around us. So if there's anything that we can pray or rejoice with you about this morning, please let us know as we stand and sing.